Keep the spice flowing. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. New fantasy fandom catchphrases have been unlocked. Yes, like a lot of you, we have found Doom, the new movie, the book, and the fandom we had somehow missed all this time. Just like a young man who discovers his purpose on a desert planet, new fandoms can be amazing, yet they also come with a few dangers slithering below the sands. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven, where we find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and sometimes stories that are not necessarily Christian-made. Either way, we apply their meanings to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish Lorehaven.com. I'm also the co-author of the nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and unlike Paul Atreides, I do not have a lot of really cool titles. And this is episode 87, How Can We Best Enjoy Newfound Fandoms Like the Book and Movie Dune, which Stephen and I both just read and watched for the very first time. So Stephen, here's a pop quiz. What are all the titles of Paul Atreides? Well, we get into little spoiler territory here, as, as we will, <laughs> of course, for anybody who hasn't yet seen the film or read the book, because uh, the film covers about, what is it now, two-thirds of the surface of the book? Uh, that's a Dune planetology reference there, two-thirds of the surface, I think. <laughs> but let me think about your question. Um, there's Moadib, uh, there's Paul yep. Atreides, he's the Duke, uh, I forget the Duke of something or other. And then there's another one, it was sort of his pre-messianic title uh, as expected by uh, the Fremen. I keep wanting to say Freeman, which I guess is kind of the, yeah. uh, the intentional assonance there. Uh, okay, so what's the total then? How, how many does this, uh, does this young chap boast? Well, the Kwisatz Haderach. Kwisatz, you have to you know, add the, roll the R's or whatever, the Kwisatz Haderach. Kwisatz Haderach. Kwisatz Haderach. My Texan accent forbids me. Yeah, see, everybody compares Dune to The Lord of the Rings, or lots of people do, but I'm not convinced that Frank Herbert invented an entire language. Uh, the syllables just sound really cool. Uh, that's not Arabic. I mean, there's this kind of Arabic, uh, futuristic, quasi-Islam influence in the novel has been, has, as has been oft-remarked with terms like uh, jihad or even the Mahdi, <laughs> the prophesied uh, Islamic uh, counterpoint antichrist uh, uh, uh the opposition of the antichrist makes an appearance there but in a very different way but yeah that's what four or five titles yeah lisan al gabe lisan al gabe that's right that's right see mm -hmm. i listened to the audiobook and as far as i can tell the narrator did a pretty good job of uh, making these syllables sound really exotic and futuristic and not at all made up yeah, I, I love that this is a human story so it's all about human cultures but in the future and, and sort of the blend of a lot of different things we see now and imagining what they'd be like what, 10,000 or something years from now. So yeah, it, it's, it's sort of a made up language. It's sort of not a made up language. It's, it's a, a synthesis of a lot of languages. Well, the whole book is a synthesis of, I was surprised, um, modern earth or, or even ancient earth cultures, uh, even a quote by Augustine makes an appearance in there. And they seem to have this kind of future version of the Bible, which is for some reason called Orange Catholic, as opposed to the Purple Catholic or the Green Catholic. <laughs> I don't know. Various. Uh, oh, you know what it is, though? It's the Orange Lantern Catholics uh, from the Green right. Lantern mythos. Uh, they, those must be the mm. greedy ones that are always after the shiny objects. But the Green Catholics are the ones who are powered by uh, the human will. I just made up a little, uh, a little crossover there. 
We're all about crossovers in this episode. This is the one where we talk about fandoms, not just Dune, but other fandoms, what it feels like getting into a new fandom, what are the perils of getting into a new fandom, and how does Christ help sanctify our enjoyments of not just the stories, but the communities that build up around these stories. Communities like lorehaven.com itself, for sure. Uh, do subscribe to Lorehaven. We've been having some great content there, reviews of new Christian-made fantasy every Friday. New podcast episodes every Tuesday and articles every week as well. We also have amazing sponsors who help keep this podcast running. And the first sponsor we have to share is, once again, the Novel Marketing Podcast. Uh, they've been sponsoring the last several episodes, about a dozen or so, I think, total is what we're doing for them. And each one covers the 10 commandments of book marketing uh, as explored by the host of the podcast, Thomas Umstadt Jr., uh, this is a podcast more about the making of these stories. Lorehaven likes to explore these stories after they're already made, but there's a lot of folks who also like to create these stories. And if that's you, you've got to listen to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Commandment number nine of this episode is, Thou shalt not publish thy first book first. And I can heartily agree with that one from personal experience. For anyone who tries to create a new story, a new novel, Thomas rightly encourages you not to put all of your hope into that one book. That one book is not the final version of that book or the first story that needs to hit the market. Uh, that is an experiment. You're working out your style. You're working out your process. Uh, it's not something you need to camp on. You should put that book away and then go write a few more before you figure out which one is best suited for the readers that you have been building up all this time, right? Whether it's traditional publishing or independent publishing, keep going, Thomas encourages. And in order to keep going, do listen to the Novel Marketing Podcast. You can find the link for that in our show notes for this episode. You can also go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. So, Stephen, I've been thinking about Dune. Why is it such a fandom? Why does it bring people so much joy to talk about, to read multiple times, uh, to watch it multiple times? What is it about fandom itself and then specifically Dune that it just draws people in? I think part of it is a fear of missing out. Uh, you see a lot of people talking about it, you know, the, for a movie project like this. It's a big name director, uh, the director of Arrival, Blade Runner 2049 and others, you know, so there's an established track record there. The studio puts a lot of hype into it and some of that is artificially seeded, but then some of it is also organic. Uh, there are many uh, readers of the book uh, who have been feeling pretty cool all along, uh, knowing about this fandom uh, that is you know, pretty widespread, so it seems. Uh, but if there's not a major movie version or something new and updated about it, it lingers at the edges of the consciousness of people like me, who only remember some kind of weird movie from the 80s. And then maybe wasn't there a miniseries not too long ago? Yeah. And isn't there something to do with spice and deserts and worms? Like, you know, there's little bits of it that penetrate the popular consciousness. But then when it breaks wide open like this, uh, it's genuinely exciting. Uh, similar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all these uh, all these very um, lower level you know, D-list characters now are getting major motion pictures uh, made to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And suddenly everybody knows about these characters that only a few readers have known about. And for my part, finding Dune very recently, literally just within the last few weeks, speed reading the book or listening to the book rather, uh, right before I saw the film, uh, it feels very humbling 
because I feel like the cool people have been the one who've known about this all along and who've been waiting for a great motion picture version for decades, similar to those who were waiting all this time or were surprised after such a long time of just liking the books uh, that the, that a good version of the Lord of the Rings came out. I did a similar thing with the Lord of the Rings 20 years ago, kind of knowing about the book at the edges of my consciousness and then reading the book really quickly at Christmas to catch up before go seeing the film. So some of this too, for me is a nostalgic rush. You know, it's a great story. It's a great mythology, intricate. Uh, the tone is at almost exactly the sweet spot of the kind of tone I enjoy in the story. Uh, noble dark slash noble bright with that kind of popular appeal, but also complexity of themes and world building. It's great. You know, there's the virtue of the story itself. And also there's the excitement of the, uh, the fans who are just naturally enthused by what's going on. Yeah. I think fandoms like this draw people in because it's something that we can enjoy together rather than just bicker about and, and, and fight and divide and That's true. go to war over. And, you know, I wonder if it coming out this year, you know, cause it was delayed a year because of COVID and it came out, you know, right before this, uh, recent, you know, midterm-ish election we just had. I wonder if that timing was just perfect. I, I wonder if people were just so sick of partisan politics and stuff, and they're like, you know what, let's go like enjoy something together. This is something C.S. Lewis talked about uh, in the book I'm reading right now, where he said that it's the people that stare up into the sky or wonder about like the past or fantasy kind of worlds that are the most immune to what he called orthodox partisans. You know, people that say, oh, well, you should get on board with this tribe or that tribe and, and duke it out with everyone. And he's like, no, if, if, basically, if you're if you're into sci fi and fantasy, it, it just kind of takes you away from that. and It kind of dilutes the pull of all that on you. But there's something else, though, about Dune that I've, I've wondered about for a long time. Why has it endured when there's tons of other fantasy books that no one really knows about that have just kind of come and gone? Dune also has an interesting origin story to it that it was published by a automobile manual <laughs> publisher that like you know puts the manuals in your cars that no one reads yeah, that just breaks all of thomas umstead's jr's <laughs> uh, novel marketing <laughs> rules do not thou shalt not oh, pitch yeah. thine story to an automobile mechanic <laughs> catalog printer that isn't that rule number 11 right i mean it'd be like getting the sears catalog publisher if that's even still around you know what I'm just so intrigued by, and this is why I, I read the book. I was like, first of all, I I kept hearing that Dune has these religious elements in it, which is unusual for a sci-fi or fantasy, um, especially if we don't know if the author was a Christian or not. And then secondly, it does seem to be this world, like like a very immersive world that people have wanted to enter and re-enter over and over again. So, you know, what is it about that, that what, what created that world for you when you were reading this? I think you're right that the film adaptation delays or otherwise does seem to have arrived at a very sweet spot in the calendar election aside, the story itself is not just a distraction from these real world struggles, but reflects these real world struggles. The story itself, treading lightly on spoilers here, is about a good family with nobility and strength, both masculine strength and feminine strength in equal balance versus this galactic gross political system uh, that is trying to take them apart. Uh, there's subversion, there's sabotage, there's false accusations. Uh, and then, you know, there's a 
finally a, an overt, you know, science fiction attack with explosions and the battle is awesome. And those bagpipes. Yes. That's an amazing <laughs> moment. The way that the film did it and uh, props to the director as well as composer Hans Zimmer. But you see a reflection of genuinely decent people. And the whole story is about, you know, some of those old sci-fi themes of mind over matter and, you know, uh, finding the untapped human potential and, you know, can get a little new agey, a little cultic if you're a uh, sure. mystic, if you're not careful. But ultimately it is about, I think, a classic view of humanism, which is derived at least in part from Christianity, that respect for humanity. And the, the novel starts with a test to determine whether Paul Atreides is human and will have a human response to a terrible pain. And then you see this disordered humanity uh, as reflected in the Baron and a lot of the villains who have just, in one case, like literally let themselves go, who are undisciplined and who are all about power for its own sake. And you like seeing the good guys versus unquestionably bad guys like that. And I think the villainy there is actually more in-depth than even the villains from Star Wars. Uh, it's not just evil uh, for some sake of you know a tragic backstory or something like you just you see that these that it's just a gross distended political system politics for its own sake and then you see nobility and love you know you see an entire dynasty trying to win over people with love and valuing human lives over the lives of or the or the survival of the equipment and the money and yet the good guys are flawed and the bad guys are legitimately challenging. It's hard for a story to strike that balance. And I think Dune, the book and the film manages to do both. Uh, yeah. You hit on something there that it's, it's fully realized characters, at least in the good guys. I mean, the, the bad guys are a little bit almost evil for its own sake, or like you said, politics for its own sake, but it, the lines are very clear. The Atreides are the good guys. They're hard. Harkonnens or Harkonnens. I, I don't know how to say it. I didn't re, I didn't house, listen to the audio. House, house Harkonnen. But I, I think the two things I hear you describing are the breadth and the depth of this story. So the yeah, breadth, you know, you, you mentioned like the bagpipe scene. That was a stunning moment in the movie where it just, I mean, you can see this in the trailer. It's where there, there's all these soldiers and all these spaceships and it's just a huge area that they are kind of unloading their you know, their, their army, their house under this planet. And there were so many shots like that. There were just these gigantic scenes. And so that, you know, it really gives you the sense that you are entering a world. It, it's not just like a plot or something. It's like an entire world with its own culture and history and characteristics. And then the depth, you know, you talk about uh, Duke Leto that, he, had a, he was a very complex character and he had some blind spots. He had some weaknesses, but he was ov overall a very likable, admirable character. It's like, man, that that's the kind of guy I want to become like, you know, or I, I would want someone like him as a friend or a relative or a father, you know, right. that, or as a Duke, as a king, yeah. as a, as a ruler, right. You, you get to see these really fully realized characters in a very fully realized world. I was almost thinking at that point. Arkenlanders in space. And by that, I refer to the, the kingdom that's next to Narnia in a few of the Chronicles of Narnia, ah. where there's this very old world, old royalty, uh, idealized view of a good king and his family and his dukes and his allies. And, you know, the, the Arkenlanders are allies of Narnia. Uh, they don't have as many talking creatures and sprites and nymphs and things like that. They're, they're just folks and they live up in the mountains and they have a castle. 
uh, from my memory. But uh, King Loon in The Horse and His Boy is one of the best Narnian characters because he is just, you know, he's obviously flawed like that. He has blind spots, uh, but he is genuinely jovial and noble and royal and a sincere servant of Aslan, the son of the emperor over the sea and more closely associated with Narnia. But Arkenland is also in Narnia, and I'm perfectly fine with another story, another kingdom having those similar Narnian virtues. And I, I see that in House Atreides, uh, although they're definitely in a darker world and uh, definitely a bit drier. Uh, I walked out of the theater thirsty, as I expected I would. Can't imagine why that would have been. Something else that really stood out to me in the book over and over was the theme of honor and shame. So we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, how there's sort of these different cultural operating systems. And, and by the way, this all comes from a book called The 3D Gospel by Jason Georges. Highly recommend this book. Great way to understand different cultures in the world. And House Atreides is very much this honor-shame culture. And one of the most striking moments, I'm so glad they put this in the movie, because in the book, this was excellent, was where they meet one of the, uh, the, the indigenous people, the Fremen on the planet Arrakis, Dune, and he comes to a meeting with them and he spits on the table. And one of the Atreides guys like pulls out a sword, like ready to just like kill this guy. And another one's like, wait, 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 this is a sign of respect because he's saying that the water of my body will, you know, will mix with the water of your body. Like we will share our water. Um, this is a sign of honor. And right before this, Duke Leto had said, I honor the man that honors me. And I thought, wow, th this is not something you see a lot in sci-fi. You see it a little bit in fantasy, but you know, sci-fi often imagines like a world that's a very different operating system. And I like that element in this because that gives it that fantasy element. And so th that's the interesting thing altogether about Dune is it really was this mix of sci-fi and fantasy. Well, it is. It, it's more. It's more space opera. There's an internal logic to it. Uh, and there's references to minerals and materials and manufacturing and things that you would associate with sci-fi. But other than the spice does it by means of navigators who enter this hallucinogenic state and who kind of ruin themselves uh, with the uh, with the guild in order to facilitate space travel, you barely see the spaceships. You know, you're on Caladan in the early part right. of the story. And then even in the book, it's just a it's just a jump. It doesn't even describe loading up and taking the flight. You know, this is a very terrestrial story on purpose uh, you're not going into space and having chases and things uh, you're staying on the surface almost the entire time uh, which makes it like you said function more according to fantasy rules there's also an internal logic in the uh, in the world that this world has eventually banned artificial intelligence and computers and uh, artificial life right. uh, that's a big rule that helps to inform the world building and i haven't gotten further than book one but you can't imagine then you know tens of thousands of years in the future, you know, far beyond even any of the, the Star Trek uh, timescales so far, uh, where humans have decided to cultivate the human potential with selective breeding and all of these different virtue systems, at least in the better houses of this particular galaxy. Uh, and it's not computers that are running the space travel, it's just people. Uh, they managed to get to the planet Arrakis and then find this substance called spice, which is the MacGuffin stuff that does just about everything. Uh, and then they use that to unlock the human potential. And that's a big theme with uh, with Paul finding out that he's actually the result of a bunch of these 
experiments with the secret order that was trying to aim for this uh, perfected human, this messianic type figure. And then, yeah, that's where it gets a little squishy for the Christian because obviously the author, Frank Herbert, is borrowing from a Catholic tradition anyway. It turns out he was raised Catholic, as a lot of these folks tend to be if they demonstrate some level of biblical fluency. But he's adapting not only phrases but concepts from the Bible, but for an entirely humanistic uh, system, which I find interesting. And just like with Star Trek, I mean, I'm glad if the author takes seriously these ideas and leans into them. Uh, not just because, well, now I can start a conversation about Jesus with my friends. I have not started a conversation about Jesus with my friends based on Dune or use it as an evangelistic tool or anything. For my part, that's part of the joy of fandom. It's, it's for internal use. You can explore these ideas. You can compare and contrast. And then as we'll discuss a little later in this show, uh, you can see how Jesus is better. You know, like, hey, humans make pretty rotten, pretty flawed messiahs, even when they're from a noble house. Uh, But Christ himself came from obscure origins uh, and is the king of the universe, Uh, having proven that, having fulfilled multiple prophecies uh, that were not, spoiler alert, uh, planted by soothsayers in a secret order in space, uh, but were actually seated across uh, the human generations by the author of history himself. You know, I think you're right in that sometimes it can be easy to jump to the gospel according to Dune. And to turn it into an evangelism. Oh, please don't tool. say that. Don't even say that. Somebody <laughs> write it. You know, that's kind of a neutral world book, though. You know, like I'm, nobody's writing those anymore. I think it's it's become such a cliche that you don't even yeah. see, a, a, you know, Gospel Coalition articles with the Gospel right. according to X because it's so cliche. But I, I think what it can be is sort of a pre-evangelism tool. There you go. There you because go. Because Dune made a lot of very interesting predictions about the future this is the past of the book, but it's basically our future. And this was written in 1965. But, you know, you mentioned about these, this obliteration or this banning of intelligent machines. And there's this line in the very beginning of the book that says, quote, once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Prescience was Frank Herbert inhaling his secret spice stash (laughs) there and catching glimpses of Mark Zuckerberg with his metaverse. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right there. I just have to find something to wear. Wow, look, it's flying fish. That's new. (laughs) Right. What a gross commercial that was. How utterly cringe. Oh, I've refused to watch it. I, I oh, you should, even, though. You should. Oh. You should get some spice, put it in a bowl, <laughs> inhale it, watch the commercial. It might actually improve it a little. Yeah. So I love that in this book, there is a cyberpunk element, but it's in the past. That there was this war against machines because machines were enslaving people. Oh, man, just take me there right now. Like, I just, I love these kind of stories because I think they are what's needed today to help us break the spell of Silicon Valley, the Silicon giants over our lives. How much do these algorithms now on social media and search engines and all kinds of big tech products, like how much are those enslaving us? And and we're handing over our thinking to these algorithms. I do this little experiment every now and then, Stephen, just to get on a slight tangent. I, I type something into Google that I know is a controversial topic because I want to see what the first 20 or so results are. And it's really interesting how they all seem to line up to a certain narrative and you have to go a few pages in to get something that disagrees with that narrative. 
And, you know, it's oftentimes not even something I care about. It's just like, I'm just curious to see what's going to come up. And man, um, Dune hits this out of the park. But like you said, it, it does turn to this other weird psychic power sort of stuff through this magical pixie dust that they get from the sand. Pixie dust. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it is more like fantasy. It's, it's like he's discovering this magical power, except it's not, it's not like an X-Men kind of thing, or it's not a, um, it's not like professor X. It's not like telepathy exactly, but it's sort of like unlocking the human potential Oh yeah. Um, we only use yeah. 10% of our brains. It, the book doesn't say right. that, but that idea, that notion has been around for a while. It's false, Yeah, but, but it's been around for a while. That That's kind of the materialist magician actually to cite yes. this again. Uh, well, th- this is not, uh, this is not telepathy. They say that a few times in the book, uh, you know, and I would add, you know, people could say, well, this is not the force. Uh, if you command somebody to do something, it's not, these are not the dwellings you're looking for. Uh, you're just, uh, tapping into the exact uh, frequency based on close observation of their habits and knowing about their culture. You know, it's like, what if Sherlock Holmes observed all this stuff about someone and then whoops, uh, magic mind over matter. Then you've just figured out how to boss them around. Uh, if you pitch your voice just right, that's, mm-hmm. but it's not magic. It's just, uh, it's just the human potential. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of magic though. Yeah. Now what was fascinating is in the middle of all of this there's this character gurney halleck that always carries around one of those orange catholic bibles and I'm, i was glad to see that in the, the movie they showed that they showed him reading from it i think he quoted from it at one point he's a literary soldier yeah he's a, yeah he's a troubadour he's a warrior he's, poet he's a warrior yeah. poet yeah which is also one of those great old archetypes that ties it back to this uh this this old world feeling uh, and yeah. which which i love i i love that kind of uh, idea yeah, and at one point someone says, uh, one time I will catch that man without a quote and he will he will look naked. Yeah, you know, he'll look undressed or something. <laughs> and it it's just it's just such a rich blend. You know, like I said, the theology is kind of light. There's a lot of philosophy, there's a lot of kind of metahumanism or you know, new age humanism, but it it takes all of those things seriously. It doesn't I guess it, what I'm saying is it's refreshing that the Christian character is not the villain or some kind of idiot character. Right. Or, or the, or the Christianity adjacent. I mean, I don't know if yeah. they say his faith specifically, he's skeptical about the whole idea of the, the Messiah of Arrakis. Uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's clearly faithful to mm-hmm. house Atreides and remains so even after some really bad things happens to him uh, to go further would be more spoilers. Um, yeah. but there's, there's a wonderful scene. I, I hit it just the other day. I think it was in, uh, chapter 44, uh, there's just a wonderful scene of uh, a character moment uh, involving him uh, that wasn't in the new film. Uh, I really hope it will be in the second film, and I hope they give it its due. But yeah, just just seeing a warrior poet uh, who's literary uh, and yet also, you know, a mighty man of valor, you know, like somebody who'd be following after King David, um, that that is really cool. He's, he's one of my favorite characters. Uh, even though his name is not Duncan Idaho, which has got to be an in joke of some kind. Wasn't he a refugee from a Flash Gordon serial? Like that's got to be a callback to older style science fiction. It's like Indiana Jones, Duncan Idaho. <laughs> I just love it. So you, you brought up something that leads us to our next point, which is you, you mentioned, I hope this is in the second film. And yes, so they, they've split Dune, the book up into Dune part one and part two. And maybe they'll keep going because Dune is an entire franchise of dozen or so books. 
you know, we're jumping into Dune really late in the game and there could be some perils there. There could be some risk to that. Cause what if they don't make part two or what if it's not very good or what if it's, what if, what if, what if like things could go wrong. Yeah. And I have, I have a good friend, Jeremy that says, Oh, I, I don't jump into any TV show until it's at least season two, <laughs> maybe season three. Cause he got so burned by Firefly getting dropped from Fox. He's like, I don't ever want that to happen again. So, you know, what, what can be sort of the, the risks of jumping into these fandoms? Well, the joy and just re- returning real quick to the joys, the joys are just finding something new and knowing that this in a sense is a good gift of God. You know, you're discovering a new hobby, uh, a new interest. And before you talk about the perils, I think it's just worthwhile to know that this is part of how God created us in the world to discover new things and new people and new stories. I would, I would agree. You're, you've been hyped at least until recently, and we'll get to a little disclaimer against your hype about the new Amazon series, The Wheel of Time, based on the Robert Jordan mega fantasy series uh, that you're a big fan of. And then I would also say that cr- Christians love discovering, oh, wow, there's these new Christian-made fantasy sci-fi stories out there. And not only are they not always cheesy, but they're actually really, really good. Uh, and that's part of why Lorehaven exists. So all of that uh, figures into the joy. And then I can also think of personal examples of, I mentioned discovering the Lord of the Rings fandom, discovering Narnia at age 10, uh, discovering Adventures in Odyssey a few years before that. Uh, and then I guess within the last five to eight years, uh, discovering that not only do I not hate anime, but there's actually some really amazing anime uh, shows, like even the most ridiculous ones. Uh, one of my favorite fandoms is uh, the series One Piece, uh, which uh, the anime is now nearing its thousandth episode i'm not joking it's a thousand episodes long each one about you know 20 22 minutes long so that's just great fun to discover that there's this ridiculous sprawling fandom out there uh that you were on the outside of and then it's very humbling you're almost laughing at yourself because you're actually enjoying this ridiculous anime series about pirates set in a fantasy world but then like you said that leads to the perils and one of the perils is you may not get to a thousand episodes. Uh, you may not get past movie one. Now they did announce there was going to be a Dune part two, and maybe they were always planning that and then just waiting for the audience demand to build. So it could seem like a response rather than we're making a giant franchise that you may or may not like, you know, but you're going to like it because money, I think people tend to recoil a little bit from that. And it may be starting to be a drag on the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. Uh, but of course, we Snyderverse fans are one of the top examples of that because even though we got the impossible movie Zack Snyder's Justice League earlier this year, uh, there are no announced plans to finish that series. And in fact, many announced movies that will break the canon and take it even further from the plot turns in in the uh, the original Justice League, the four-hour version that was released. So yeah, that's a peril. Uh, you may end up with the non-existent Firefly Season 2. Uh, your other show gets canceled. Or uh, as we'll talk in a moment about Wheel of Time, there may be a lot of hype for it, but then it turns out, oh, maybe the adaptation is going to break the canon by force or by political agenda. Mm-hmm. Zach, you have opinions on that. You wrote a rather epic Twitter exploration of a moment in a Wheel of Time trailer uh, that uh, you did not appreciate. Oh, yeah. So the Wheel of Time is... One of my, it's my favorite fantasy series. It's it's really the only one I keep going back to. There there's been other fantasy books I've read and enjoyed, but The Wheel of Time is uh, just it's something I got into in high school, so about twenty five years ago, 
and um, it's got what fourteen books. He's looking at his shelf here. I, I always I always lose count. Yeah, I've I, I've got them all in hardback. So I read them all in like paperback, except for the last ones because I got them as soon as they came out. And then I started uh, finding you know used copies of them in half price books, uh, the, the hardbacks because the uh, the paperbacks being eight hundred to a thousand pages. You know they don't really last; <laughs> they they just fall apart pretty quickly. But the the Wheel of Time has a similar theme as Dune in that there is this prophesied Messiah, uh, a young man that's coming into the world to both save the world and destroy the world. So right away, I love the parallel of Paul Atreides and what's called the Dragon Reborn in the Wheel of Time, because Paul. He had all these visions of the future where he was leading it. Well, in the book, they called it a jihad. In the movie, they called it a religious war. Now, they actually use the phrase holy war in the movie. I was impressed war. by Thank that, you. which is the yeah. literal meaning of jihad. So you, you get to avoid being offensive, but still be faithful. Yeah. And apparently in an early trailer, he said a crusade. And so they're like... Ironic. <laughs> and that didn't, that didn't work out. So they didn't want to use jihad or crusade. They just said holy war which I think is better because again, it's not really Islam. It's not really Christianity that's in this movie. It's sort of these mutated versions, I guess. And so, so there's this great line in Dune where Jessica had quoted a Bean Jesseret proverb to him, if I'm saying that right. Benny Jesseret. Benny Jesseret. Audio book advantages, (laughs) y'all. The proverb was, when religion and politics travel in the same cart, the writers (sighs) believe nothing can stand in their way. So that's very much a theme of Dune. And I think the follow-up book, Dune Messiah, where we do see Paul rise to great power, but also great mayhem, I assume happens. And this is very much a theme of the Wheel of Time, that there's this sort of dual nature of the dragon reborn being both a savior and a destroyer. And in the Wheel of Time, it's even more grounded in the lore of the world. So. So quick backstory, the Wheel of Time has this really epic world backstory of this age of legends where people use magic to do all kinds of amazing things. It was very utopian. And the interesting thing about magic in the world of the Wheel of Time is it's gendered. There's a male half and a female half of the one power. And and it works differently for men than it does for women. So this is not a gender spectrum here. It is the binary. It's binary. Yes. Binary. <gasps> right up front. Wow. Mm, yep. Uh-huh. And so uh, what happens in the backstory is that the dark one, like the devil figure, is able to break free of his prison and basically cause chaos in the world. And so the, what are called the eyes to die, like the channelers or the magicians, you know, in the story, the good magicians, they battle against him. And there's one man in charge of the man channelers named Luz Theron Telemann. And he leads this all-male assault against the Dark One. And he does that for sort of misguided chivalry, like he doesn't want any women to get hurt. But he sort of just cuts them out of it. Like, it's not like he hates women or something. He just, he actually cares about women, but kind of to a fault. And the result is that when they seal the Dark One away, Right as they close the prison or whatever, the dark one lashes out at the male half of the one power and pollutes it and, and puts this, you know, stain on it that 
instantly causes all of the men to go insane. And then ever since then, any man that that uses the one power goes crazy and kills everyone and kills himself and destroys everything. And so this has been going on now for thousands of years. And so female channelers have to hunt men down that use magic and gentle them, like remove their ability to channel. Oh, wow. This is very classic, very classic humanism here with, 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 yeah. with echoes of an original sin motif, uh, which right. leads to one peril of, of Christians who like this series trying to squash it into the Bible paradigm where, where there's a little justification there, but it's more that our cultures inherited these ideas of original sin and, you know, the battle between the sexes, you know, the idea then that, uh, you know, man is supposed to do the hard work and the woman is supposed to domesticate him. And you know, some of these yeah. that are faintly scriptural, but not quiet. So yeah, in this, in this world, the women hold all the power. I mean, literally they're the only ones that can use the one power, but they, you know, they have a very highly organized society that has a ton of rules about it. And a lot of people oppose them all the same, but you know, and people have argued, is this book a polemic against radical feminism or toxic masculinity or both? Like, it's kind of interesting. There, there's a lot of different perspectives about all this. But the point is that this character, Luce Theron Telemann, who was called the dragon, as soon as he died, there was a prophecy that he'd be reborn because this is a world with reincarnation. Again, it's a fantasy world. So the, the first book in the series, The Eye of the World, is about a female channeler going in search of the dragon reborn because in the immediate backstory, she was told that he had been reborn. And it's very, very clear it's a boy and it's super important that it is a boy or a man uh-huh. because if it's just a woman being the dragon reborn, first of all, that doesn't make sense. But second of all, there's no drama in a woman using the one power because the, the whole drama of a man using the one power is could that he could fall, could go either way, uh-huh. right? He, he could he'd save the world or destroy it or both. And, um, the trailer, unfortunately completely puts this aside and forgets it. And, uh, the, the main character, Moiraine, she says, and there's these three boys. She thinks one of them is the dragon reborn. And there's these two, uh, girls that go with them. I mean, they're like late teenagers, early twenties. And she, in the book, she says, it's one of you three. And in the trailer, she says, it's one of you five. Right. And then in one of the newer trailers, she says, we don't know where the dragon was reborn or what he looks like, or even if it's a boy or a girl, <laughs> I'm just like, just digging in, huh? What? Like doubling down on this stupid narrative so just of a clarify, gender neutral dragon. So this yeah. is not a, a small change then it is no. a, a pivotal adjustment to the lore. It is a foundational okay. change. Yeah. That, uh. Now, will they actually retain the same character as the dragon reborn? Probably. And that's what a lot, like when I posted this on Twitter, a lot of people reply with that. Oh, don't worry. It'll be the same. It'll be the same guy. Don't worry. And I'm not going to say who it is, but Moraine does not have that misunderstanding in the, in the books. No one does because that is what they're all afraid of the dragon being reborn because it's, it's sort of like, you know, people today that are premillennial post-trib, they're like, Hey, Jesus could come back in our lifetime and that'd be great, except we got to go through the tribulation first and that would really stink. And I really hope I'm not the generation that will do that. Right. So it's whereas like a pre-trib person would say, 
hey, I hope Jesus comes back because I get raptured. I don't have to go through the tribulation. Wonderful. And, and like that is a, not a small difference. And that's what the adaptation is getting wrong. Anyway, end of rant. I feel so passionate about this because the world that was built up through these 14 massive books, like over 10,000 pages, I, I think Shane Morris counted up. There's a million words in this. It's just incredible. It's just a very rich world with breadth and depth. And I, I can't wait to see it. Like, and I just want to clarify, I'm not going to be hate watching this show. I'm going to be, I might be grown watching it at a couple points, but I'm going to be watching this show because I love the books. Well, that's part of the perils of joining a new fandom is there are going to be these grown moments or worse. I mean, even if your story does get finished, take the Lord of the Rings, for example, there are many grown worthy moments in the films and they've gotten turned into memes. Uh, one recent one that kind of took off in at least one page I follow uh, over the weekend is people are laughing at Legolas near the end of the Return of the King, saying, a diversion. Uh, it, it is an interesting moment. Like, thanks for spelling that out there, son of Thranduil. We didn't get that before. Appreciate it. <laughs> and people can laugh at him, you know, surfing the shield and things like that, you know, and grabbing Gimli by the beard and that sort of thing. You know, some of that is just in the movie version to be a crowd pleaser. Uh, but then there's stuff like uh, Arwen sticking your dagger against Aragorn and saying, what's this? A ranger caught off his guard. Uh, all of the book fans in the theater groaned. And I, I was in the theater, a recent book fan, so I didn't know any better. Uh, but my wife is from a professional Lord of the Rings fan family, and they didn't like <laughs> that. And they even skipped seeing the Two Towers, the theatrical oh, version, wow. in theaters entirely because they picked up on all the changes made to Faramir. Faramir, his character is very different, at least starting out in the Two Towers. And so fans, some fans didn't like that very much. Uh, and yet the film did take, I would say, great pains uh, to make sure they didn't do any more changes like that, even though they had to uh, adjust the story a lot for that uh, for that adaptation. But that's stuff for story structure. You know, like Dune the movie had to obviously shorten a lot of the elements in the book. The big dinner party was gone. A lot of other elements were gone. Duncan Idaho never gets drunk, that kind of thing. Spoiler alert, in the book, he does. Still don't quite know why, but um, maybe a reread would flesh that out. But in addition to the adaptation stuff, there's this, um, there's this threat of ideology that can mm -hmm. influence the adaptation. And we're actually not going to talk about that as much in this episode, probably more so in our next episode, a spiritual sequel to this one. But a fast-growing religious movement in Western culture does tend to influence uh, the manufacturing of these kinds of stories. And some people call that progressive. Some people call it diversity. Some people call it woke. And woke means bad. You know, if you use the word, uh, at least uh, if you're a Christian or a social conservative, uh, it's not in a flattering sense. Uh, it generally means, and I would generally agree with this, that you are valuing the ideology, the social benefit of the story more than the story itself. And that increasingly is a peril of joining a new fandom because somebody could come along and just make the story go woke. And I'm all for diversity, but maybe you want diversity of characters uh, more than interesting characters, more than characters who reflect the human struggle uh, to live and get married and have a family, you know, versus just the human struggle to do the proper politics. That's increasingly a peril, uh, and it's something that we can be aware of as we move forward into new fandoms and uh, share them amongst ourselves. Well, and I, I think, yeah, the the counterpoint to this or the the other segment of fandom from these books when they become adaptations is what I would call maybe an originalist. It's like, Hey, just make a faithful adaptation of the books. 
we can debate these themes. We can debate these characters. That's all fine. But let's at least put on the screen what we know is in the story and and then go from there. You know, because I, I think a lot of social conservatives would not want the Amazon Lord of the Rings adaptation to have a character go, you know, let's make Middle Earth great again. Like that would be so nauseating if any, if any kind of like political slogan gets put into a adaptation. And so, yes, this is very much the, the danger of being a fan of a book. And then you, you know, the book is made in one time period and then the movie is made another time period with all of its social mores. But, you know, Stephen, there is a funny aspect of fandom, and I, I saw someone make a comment about this, that when the Lord of the Rings uh, announcement was made, the, the series coming to Amazon, all they announced it with was this one, you know, poster, like this one image. And within, I don't know, 30 minutes or an hour, like people had figured out like who that character is, where it is, Gondoline. when it's taking place. Yeah. And uh, so, so someone has made a comment about this that like, you have no idea the power you're messing with, you know, with this fandom that they could take one image and figure out exactly what the story is going to be about. And so that, that is kind of the fun side of fandom that, that there is this sort of insider knowledge to what's going to be happening. Another positive aspect of fandom is there's always a new fandom just waiting to discover. Not every book, as Zach mentioned, not every movie, science fiction, fantasy, or otherwise gets a fandom. But every story put out there has the potential to spawn a fandom if it hits at just the right moment or has the just right amount of uh, creative excellence. Who knows? You may find a new fandom in our second sponsor for this episode, which is, again, D.N. Woodward's novel, a fantasy novel called A Choice of Blades. You can get the cover and more information at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors, as well as the show notes for this episode should be right at the top there. Here, however, is the description in part. With no knowledge of his true heritage, a young rancher, Leon Waldman, must forge a bold path for survival when he is tossed into a legendary world of powerful skin changers and deadly creatures of myth. Leon knows the mercenaries have plans that may or may not include him and the others, and the locals prove to be just as dangerous as they look. Come what may, he is determined to stick to a promise made to his grandfather, a promise to find a way home for him and those forced through the portal with him. To do so, he's going to have to push himself in ways he never thought possible, and a simple bone-handled blade may be the key to either making or breaking that effort. But before he can make good on any promises, he must learn to navigate this new mythical land with a rancher's grit, a unique set of powers, and some new friends along the way. Author James Haddock, an Amazon best-selling Western sci-fi novelist, endorses the book saying, This is a good book. Engaging characters, good pace, good suspense. Find more information, lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors or the show notes for this episode. So, okay, so we have a creation. Fandom is made, a paradise full of wonderful ideas and images and characters and other fans to cultivate. And then, oh no, a serpent enters the garden. The fandom doesn't work out that well. The movie is bad. Uh, the book series never gets finished. Uh, the adaptation breaks the canon. How then shall we be saved from this body of death? Well, let's look for a Messiah, not on the planet Arrakis or in the Wheel of Time verse, but from Jesus Christ. Sounds cliche, but I don't care. That's what Christians do. We tie everything back to Jesus, ultimately the hero of the universe. 
And we find his wisdom in the word of God about how to receive new gifts from God ultimately with thanksgiving and how to get past some of the flaws and nonsense and human sin that infects those gifts. And it's a perfect time to talk about thanksgiving with it being just a few weeks away now as we release this episode. And I'll once again return to one of our favorite uh, passages about this topic, which is 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, which starts off with a warning against false teachers who warn against good things like food and marriage, and then encourages people how to reject the false teaching and enjoy the good thing anyway, but without pretending like it's a neutral thing. There is still something you have to do to understand and enjoy this gift properly. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's the scripture. And the reason why I apply this to something as jejun, as popular culture, uh, not just food and marriage, is that God here is speaking about good things, food and marriage. These are cultural practices. We take the food out of the earth, the grains, and then after Genesis 9 anyway, uh, even animals, we make recipes, we have feasts around the food, uh, we build up these traditions around the distribution and enjoyment of food. So all that's tied in there together, the human culture and the gift of God, and then marriage as well. That's a good gift that people have had to adapt across their cultures. That's why I apply this also to human imagination, even though that's not specifically mentioned in this passage. I love how the Apostle Paul is debunking the false teachers, but he doesn't stop at just saying, don't be a legalist. Don't be a legalist like those guys. It's okay to get married. It's okay to eat. Because we still know that good gifts like enjoyment of food and marriage can be corrupted. He specifically says yes in that last verse, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if, big if, it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, I think a pastor with knowledge of Greek may need to flesh out the meaning of it is made holy, but I read that as an enjoyment of these gifts as means of sanctification. We don't just accept the gift and then we say, oh, here's the gospel according to Dune, or here's the gospel according to the Wheel of Time, or Fandom X. We find these things are suitable for us if we are in a posture of thanksgiving and God's word and prayer. That is, if we are trying to be like Jesus. I don't think that means we have to enjoy everything, and some things are clearly unredeemable. Um, I wouldn't put uh, any of the fandoms we've talked about in that category, though. I think if you find yourself attracted to that thing, uh, you can find that thing, in a sense, made holy, but only if you are in the Word of God and a lifestyle of prayer and thanksgiving to God. If you're trying to be like Jesus as one of his redeemed saints in the gospel, if you're plugged into a local church, if you value discipleship and do the, doing these things together in the fandom of Christ, which is the top fandom, by the way, uh, it almost seems um, trifling to describe that as a fandom, but it is kind of. If we're trying to be like Jesus, then we can also enjoy these lesser human fandoms for the glory of God and uh, even put the perils in perspective. You know, Stephen, this verse about receiving things with 
Thanksgiving, and 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 that's uh, a very crucial step. It reminds me of Romans one twenty one, where it says, "For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude." That's right. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. And it goes on to say that they they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four footed animals, reptiles. And they they reject worshiping the Creator and instead re- worship the creation. And I think that's exactly what can happen when we get into fandoms is that if we don't thank God for the ability to create and share and enjoy stories, and, and if we take our focus off of him, we, we will end up worshiping the, the creative work and it can become even an identity. To be honest, this is what's sort of kept me away for, or sort of turned me off at least to Harry Potter. You know, you see all these quizzes, well, I'm a house Slytherin or I'm a house Hufflepuff. Like, I have no idea what any of these mean because I haven't read Harry Potter, but it did. I mean, Harry Potter encourages that. It encourages people to take on an identity from the book. Now, okay, that's probably harmless with a lot of people, but it it is interesting how that can take over, that the fandom becomes this thing that you define yourself by, and it sort of like locks you in to thinking and seeing the world through that story. The solution is to just say, thank you, God, that we get to enjoy this. And that, that, that has a weird way of like releasing our grip on it. And it releases like the idolatry that can happen from it. Cause that's really what we're talking about is the danger of phantom is that it's the danger of anything. It's the danger of enjoying Dr. Pepper. You know, that's, that's my phantom as a Texan <laughs> or bluebell ice cream. My goodness. Like those are my top two fandoms, uh, and brisket from Rudy's, you know, but obviously you, you become idolatrous with those, you fall into gluttony and other things. And so anything good can be twisted into an idol that takes over your life. But when you, when you thank God for it, and when you turn your eyes to the giver of good gifts and the creator of creativity, uh, I think you'll be okay. Amen to that. Interesting. You mentioned the Harry Potter fandom. You actually see a fairly recent example of a fandom undergoing a kind of self-destruction. I'm, I'm sure the loudest voices rise to the top and there's still many hundreds of thousands of Harry Potter fans that don't get into the politics or don't yell at JK Rowling for being a turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist, just because she believes uh, that you ought turf. not try to trans the kids. Yeah. I mean, as we mentioned in our last episode, J.K. Rowling seems truly to believe that there is a kind of secular materialist dark magic in the world uh, that is a legitimate threat to children. And I'm, I'm glad to see that. But her position has, to some extent, divided the fandom. And some people have gone so far as to say something rather blasphemous on the human level. They're saying that the Harry Potter universe doesn't belong to her. She didn't make it. I did. That's mm. just the kind of idolatry that you're talking about when you it's identify so much with yeah. the world. Oh, yeah, it's very postmodern. Uh, you didn't make this. I made this. And what a way to demonstrate a rebellion against the capital C creator uh, by acting it out in microcosm against a lowercase c human creator. That is a very bad place to be as a human being, uh, not rightfully ordered uh, towards an imaginary world, probably indicates that you're not rightfully ordered in the real world. That's what the idolatry of fandom can do. And ultimately, it will lead away from happiness and the good feelings that you had when you joined the fandom in the first place. If you want to just stay there, if you don't trace the reflections of light from that human story to 
the ultimate giver of light, the author of the real world, the real history that we're in, uh, you're going to fail. You're going to be unhappy. You need instead to deconstruct those idols. I mean, that goes back to uh, the fourth point of the five point response to popular culture we explore in the pop culture parent, uh, which is you, you talk about the good stuff, the truth, the good, the beauty uh, in question number three. And then in our question number four, you have to ask where are the idols and how do they fail to fulfill their promises? The fandom will only let you down if you insist on embracing it to this extent, if you insist on worshiping it or making it your own, that's going to hurt you. Ultimately, it's going to hurt you and you're not going to be happy. You're going to end up miserable and kind of a glutton on imagination. You know, I'm starting to see some of the villains in Dune here where you just see that they're just constantly engorging themselves on, well, in one case, food. Uh, and you see a live example there of what happens if someone is just not receiving food with Thanksgiving and certainly the word of God or prayer or even the orange Catholic Bible are nowhere to be seen. And you see what that does to that guy. Uh, in, in the Dune universe. We were not made to be such. Uh, we were made to enjoy food and marriage, and I would also add imagination, uh, in proportion. Not just balanced according to our own standards, uh, but balanced according to the giver's standards. We have got to follow his operation manual for these good gifts, uh, or else we are just doomed to fail. And instead, we need to look to Christ and the advice, <laughs> the command here, given to Christians in 1 Timothy 4 and assumed and commanded throughout the rest of the Bible. Yeah, so let's go to the comm station now and hear from our fantastic fans that are probably asking us now, how you doing? Oh, man, I didn't even get to that <laughs> joke. See, okay, real quick <laughs> reference here, y'all. Okay, so we have this app that we use to plan our podcast, and I had added the Dune poster in there. Zach at one point had uploaded a spoof poster featuring some guy from a <laughs> fandom alien to me of the Friends sitcom fandom, the guy who says, how you doing? So I pull up the notes uh, to check on some things and I see that poster and then I double take and I go, what in the world? <laughs> Zach, what did you do? It's a computer glitch or? Yes. Uh, no, it's, it was. We were going to have to go Butlerian rather, Jihad on the. Uh, uncanny the Valley effect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so uh, so we're mixing fandoms here, but uh, let's hear from Autumn, who wrote a comment on the podcast episode page on lorehaven.com about our last episode, 86, How Can Christians Fight Halloween's Death, Flippancy, and Dark Magic? And Autumn says, quote, it's probably not healthy to flippantly label things as flippant either. My family always decorated for fall, never Halloween. But now and then, my dad and I would joke about what phrase or saying we would put on our gravestones. Mine was, I tried. Maybe people would hear our jokes and assume we were being flippant about our own deaths, but we weren't. Our gravestone phrases have a lot of layers of meaning to them that are important to us as individuals. From my comments about what the Peter Pan story meant to me, it should be clear that I do take death seriously. But even though I joke about saying, I tried, on my gravestone, it's not said just to be funny. It's also venting some of my own sadness and bitterness about certain things. Humor is often a communication tool, and a lot of comedians talk about things in their performances precisely because the issue is important to them, end quote. I thought that was a great comment and a good counterpoint to our emphasis in the last episode about flippancy. 
I guess we could have put in a few more uh, concession stand items about that, but I, I hope we were clear is that we weren't necessarily challenging uh, a, a kind of dark humor, you know, a kind of uh, uh, position of safety uh, based mockery of death. You know, like we did talk about how, you know, scripture does implicitly encourage uh, mocking of the devil. Uh, mocking of death, which uh, which ultimately only has a sting for believers, even though that is quite the deep sting, especially if you've been through it recently, especially after some pandemic and uh, related death there. Death is pretty horrible. And yet as Christians in Christ, from that security, I think we can be, in a sense, not glib, not flippant about it, but we can employ some dark humor uh, without being so self-serious about that either. I think a serious person can still find ways to laugh or parody things. Uh, I enjoy a good parody as much as anybody for sure. I think my main position there is that most people, most of our neighbors don't have that level of security. They're not in a place where they are secure in a savior who has secured defeat over death. And so they have no cause to laugh about it. If they're being flippant about death, whether it's with plastic tombstones or skeletons or decorations or anything like that, that flippancy has no foundation. Uh, and at least at the broader cultural level, it is surely a way to make fun of something that is an actual threat. You don't have that ability. Uh, and that does make me concerned, uh, at least at that broad level. You know, Maybe the neighbor next door is not thinking that way. But I think just as an observer of the culture, we are entirely too glib and flippant about the seriousness of death, which for other people is not a defeated foe. Uh, we are not universalists on fantastical truth. Uh, we are not laid back about the fact that most of our neighbors are not in Christ and therefore are on the way toward a very bad fate uh, under the wrath of God. Uh, we're evangelistic here. And because we want to be evangelistic, even at Halloween, not being legalistic about it, but about redeeming the occasion for Christ, I don't think that means you have to give John 3.16 to everybody who comes to your door, for example. But who knows? Maybe if you put out that kind of tombstone, uh, even if you know what you mean by it, how is your neighbor going to look at it? You know, your actual neighbor, not just a theoretical neighbor you know, or our neighbor. You know, my neighbor may not react like your neighbor. You know your context. Uh, you know the region, the time that you're in. It's just an encouragement to think carefully about those kinds of decisions and think carefully about how we are coming across uh, to our unsaved neighbors who need Jesus more than they need flippancy about death. What I've been thinking about, Stephen, is that we live in a cultural moment that for the longest time has felt invincible. <laughs> and I think 9-11 was really the first kind of wake-up call to that because we'd gone several decades without any sort of imminent danger. I mean, yes, there was the Cold War, but that's sort of nebulous to a lot of people. Um, and then COVID obviously has brought that reality of death to a lot of people. I, I just heard a statistic that 29% of Americans know someone personally who's died of COVID. Now, okay, 30%, it's not everyone. That seems a little low, actually. It does seem low, but I mean, it's like you know someone personally, like you have a friend or a family member. Oh, okay. So, you know, taken that way, it actually is It's kind of high. I think what bothers me about the, yeah, like you said, the plastic gravestones is that for the most part, we, we live in a culture that completely avoids consideration or, or meditation on death. So, and, and here's how I, this has become apparent to me. Um, there's this new route I go on Saturdays where I drive by this church that has its own cemetery. 
like right there on the property. Oh, yes. And every time I drive by it, it shocks me. It's like, whoa, what what kind of church puts a cemetery on its lot? It's like, well, that's it's actually been around for a long time. And that used to be a very common thing for churches. It's actually not common in the scope of history that churches today don't have their own cemeteries. And now what is common is cemeteries are way out of town, like way out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. We, we can't forget the fact that we live in a culture that does not want to think about death in a healthy way, in a, in a sober way. And so for me, that that's what, that's why I don't like a lot of aspects of Halloween. Cause it's like when you try to have a serious conversation about something and someone just kind of laughs it off and, and, uh, yeah, that that's, I don't want to talk about death all the time, but what I'm saying is it it's that weird conversation our cultural, our culture is having where they're not really having the conversation. They're just sort of joking about it. And I don't think that's the same as dark humor though, because I, I think dark humor kind of does recognize the reality of hard things, but it's sort of like a, I guess a coping strategy or it's a, it, it can be a healthy response. So I think those are different things. Right. I'm going to co-opt a rather woke sounding phrase here. I think Christians need to check our privileges. We know that death only has a sting and is not permanent. And therefore we have the privilege of employing dark humor uh, just to deal with that reality as a coping strategy, coping, not distracting. We're aware of it. We know it's coming and we can, in a sense, do dark humor jokes about it, but non-believers do not have that privilege. We shouldn't hoard that privilege to ourselves. We are commanded by our savior to share as much as we can that privilege with others. Death only has a sting, but we shouldn't be glib about it. Just dark humor about it. Only as we know that death is a defeated foe by Christ. Well, thanks again, Autumn, for writing us that message. That was really good to think about and kind of uh, have a conversation with you about. And to you, our listener, if you would like to write to us uh, or have a comment on the show, send us an email to podcast at lorehaven.com or drop a comment in the, the comment section on the website, on the, the podcast page. Uh, or you can send us a note on social media. Just look for Lorehaven on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also subscribe to Lorehaven at lorehaven.com slash subscribe. Next on Fantastical Truth. Well, we have just explored the joys and perils and Christ-like response of joining new fandoms. And we lightly touched on one big danger. The systemic influence of false beliefs that are creeping into more fandoms these days. That is making new generations of Christians and even non-Christians say, well, if that story has gone woke, then we want no part of that. We're going to be joined by a guest, once known as Esther O'Reilly, but she's recently unmasked and revealed her secret identity to the world as Bethel McGrew. She studies and writes about philosophy and sociopolitical issues, and she's joining us to explore how we can stay true to our identities in Christ while guarding ourselves and our children from evil ideas, while also teaching them and ourselves to own these stories with facts and logic and biblical imagination. Meanwhile, regardless of what fandom you enjoy, whether it's Dune or The Wheel of Time or any of the many Christian-made fantasy and sci-fi fandoms, Make sure to see that story world in light of the real world that Jesus calls us to serve as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.